excuse me. And now, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Today, we are studying together Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37 and reading through verse 42. We have an elder in our congregation who takes uh, meticulous notes on everything that happens, and my guess, I haven't checked with him, but my guess is that if you asked Bill Mercaldi to read uh, the margin somewhere in his Bible, he will probably tell you, I could be wrong, uh, I could be wrong, but he would probably tell you that nine years ago, uh, on March uh, of 2010, I stepped into Redeemer's pulpit to open God's word to you for the very first time, and I preached this text. Um, and so now here we are, the real test uh, of maturity in ministry. Let me suggest to you that if any of you are um, curious, don't bother uh, to look, <laughs> look on the website this week and, and listen to that first when you're not missing anything. But uh, the word is not uh, about the man and how well he presents it, but the truth before us. And today we are looking uh, at a truth that is... Uh, is close at hand to many of us that we need to hear, uh, your pastor included. And so we're reading today uh, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37 and reading to verse 42 on page 863. If you've not yet found it in our cart Bibles, please join me in prayer before we go to the Lord and read his word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would speak for your servants are listening. Help us to hear from you the word that we need to hear, the word of Christ and the word of mercy in his name. Oh, give us your mercy in him and help us to model that mercy in the world that you have called us uh, to live in. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do this for your name's sake. Amen. Hear now God's word as we read it, uh, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not. You will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log as it is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, uh, whenever I get a chance uh, to go and have dinner in a decent restaurant, uh, often uh, when I get to do that without children, um, my typical default order is to get a steak. Not that I'm, I'm some meat-crazed macho man, but, uh, but we don't eat steak a whole lot at home, and I love to go out and order a steak where they know how to cook it uh, and where it shows up, uh, and they've removed all of the gristle, but all the fat is still there, and it's all marbled in, and it's juicy, and it melts in your mouth, and that's what makes 
a good steak in a good restaurant, and I've noticed that it never comes with the fat neatly trimmed when you get it that way. And yet, inevitably, when you, when you eat in a place like that, somewhere across some table, there's, some, there's always somebody. There's somebody sitting there who is neatly and dutifully trimming every little piece of fat off of their steak and laying it uh, aside. And no, no condemnation, if that's, if that's you. I get it, maybe... Maybe that person in the restaurant is trying to watch their figure. Maybe they've never ordered a steak before. That's okay. Uh, but what happens by the end of your eating experience is that you and that other person have perhaps ordered the same exact cut of meat, and yet you have a vastly different experience of that meal depending on how you slice it. And that could be a parable for how we treat this passage before us in the hands of different people, and depending on how you slice it, and depending on what you connect it to, this could have vastly different implications in lots of different situations, and you know how it goes. There is the uh, cable news interviewer, and they've got their split screen up with their panel of experts, and they've got the token Christian there phoning in his interview from somewhere in the middle of Iowa. And he's okay as long as he continues to talk about public opinion and legislation and policy and poll results and all these sorts of things. And the very moment that that person even begins to think about saying anything about moral right and wrong, you know how it comes across. Oh, there go those Christians telling us what we ought and ought not to do. And why don't you get off of your high horse already and judge not? Isn't that in your Bible, Christians? Judge not, lest you also be judged, it comes across. It happens in the church, too. Your sister in Christ has gotten tired of waiting for a Christian man to come along, and she's decided just to date an unbeliever because everybody knows that anything is better than being lonely, but now the relationship's gotten serious. Now they're talking about marriage and children and picking out apartments, and it's taken you this long, but you finally get up the courage to speak the truth in love, at least so you think, and you go and you speak to this sister and up go the defenses, and where do you get off telling me what to do? How would you like it if anybody was, everybody's going through all of your dirty laundry and looking in and, and judging what you were doing, and as she walks out the door and as it shuts in your face, judge not, she says, lest you be judged. And we know how this is used in lots of different situations. And this is a, this is a powerful and convicting passage before us, this, uh, this call to judge not, condemn not, to look at your own log before you look at the speck of somebody else. And, but like the steak without the fat, something is missing if we, if we slice this out of its larger context. I want you to remember at the very beginning that we are in the midst of a sermon, and a sermon in which Jesus has a particular agenda. We saw earlier that Jesus is it's publicly commissioning, we could say, his church in the world. He's just called uh, his 12 apostles to himself, and he is, he's drawing them out, and he goes and he stands on a level place with his disciples, and he speaks to his disciples about what they ought to expect in the world. And yet, at the beginning of chapter 7, it also tells us, <coughs> excuse me, that he said all these things in the hearing of the people. 
So here he is with his new church. He's speaking to them, but everybody else is listening. And so there is, uh, there is this immediate audience, but a larger purpose. The sermon is about what disciples ought to expect in the world, and it's also about what the world ought to expect of disciples. What is it that sets apart the followers of Christ? What's special about those who claim to know and to love the Lord Jesus Christ? And what's special about disciples and followers is where we ended a few weeks ago. It's verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. That's what this is about. It's called to, to judge not. It's not about refusing to make moral evaluations in the world. This is about how Jesus' followers model God's mercy to the watching world. And I think there are a few uh, distinct takeaways in our passage. First, in, in verses 37 to 38, Jesus is showing us that merciful disciples, those who are merciful as their Father is merciful, merciful disciples actively forgive legitimate wrongs. Legitimate wrongs. That's the key here. We've already mentioned the way that this is mishandled and, and misapplied, and we don't need to go too much further down that trail, but it's a verse that, that sometimes gets used to defend the cause of tolerance at all costs. And this desire to, to paint everything in shades of gray where you're okay and I'm okay and we're all just okay and just leave everybody alone and let them get on with their life and don't be discerning in the world, but refusing to be discerning actually isn't a good thing in the Scripture. In fact, it's a wicked thing. And Isaiah says, chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put light for darkness and darkness for light, who exchange sweet and bitter and refuse to make distinctions. It's not a good thing to refuse to be morally discerning in the world. Rather, it's a virtue everywhere in Scripture to know more of what God approves and to know more of what is offensive to the Lord and to know how to make distinctions between right and wrong. Godly discernment is a good thing. And you know that. And so we don't want to, to turn this into a passage of permissiveness, and we don't need to spend any more time on application. Perhaps if we were in a different situation, maybe, maybe if our problem was permissiveness in regard to sin, we'd, we'd need to talk about what this passage is not about, more than we need to talk about what it is about. But the truth is that the real application of this scripture is far closer to home for most of us far closer to what we actually need to hear, the right application of this passage. Because this isn't about ignoring sin, but it's about forgiving it. And those are two completely different things. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here in these commands, judge not, uh, condemn not, you, you just have to keep reading. When you do that, you notice that there is a, a poetic parallelism in this verse. There are uh, two negative commands and two positive commands, and they they're set in tension with one another, and it's really all together that they give us the full picture of what Jesus is talking about. And so, do not judge uh, isn't balanced with, with tolerance, uh, and, and condemnation isn't set against permissiveness. They're balanced by forgiveness. They're balanced by charity. And so, we could understand them. Do not judge those who've wronged you, but rather forgive them. Do not condemn those who quite frankly, might be worthy of condemnation. But instead, give to them what is a blessing to them, what can build them up. Or treat others, as Jesus said back in verse 31, as you wish they would treat you. Be merciful, as your heavenly Father is merciful. That's the pattern. 
Because our merciful Heavenly Father deals with and forgives the sins of ungrateful people. And the wicked and the ungrateful, he says. That's the pattern the Lord gives us, and that raises the question, well, how does God deal with the sins of ungrateful people like you and me? But you, mostly. How does God deal with the sins of ungrateful people? Does he merely ignore your sins, or does he do something completely different? As far as the east is from the west, says the psalmist. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There's an intentional separation there. Not a, oh yeah, I, I, don't, I don't care about that. No, I, I can overlook that. But there's, there's a removal there. And again, in, in Colossians chapter 2, it says uh, that you who are dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then he tells us how. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Does the Lord ignore sin? Is that how God is merciful? Does he ignore, does he overlook, does he simply say, that, that doesn't bother me and I can just ignore those things? Or, or does he do something much more profound? Does he acknowledge our sin? Does he call it for what it is? Does he, does he recognize the wickedness that drips from our hands like water that continues to come out of a flowing spring and it just seems to come and bubble up out of nowhere? Does the Lord acknowledge that these things come out of our hearts and, and out of the sinfulness of our beings and, and extend out into the world everywhere we go like a dripping faucet leaving, leaving a trail behind us? Does the Lord acknowledge those things? And once he's acknowledged them, does he actively remove them from us? That's what he does. In Christ Jesus, he chooses to carry the weight of our sin, all of them, in order that our transgressions might not cause a rift between us and him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but then he'll go on to say, instead, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, this is how God deals with our sin. He bears the weight of it. He takes it upon himself to forgive it. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you can atone for anyone else's sin. I'm not suggesting that, that by your sacrifice and choosing to forgive someone else, their sin is done away with before the Lord. That's, that's not what I'm saying, but the pattern that we get here is the pattern we get from the Lord. How do you deal with the sins of ungrateful people against you? Well, you bear the weight of them. And you carry them and you refuse to count them against that person. That's what God has done. And actually, this is, this is far harder than ignoring the sins and saying, oh, no, that, that sticks and stones. That, that doesn't bother me. And Jesus is saying that we ought to acknowledge actual sins and, and be discerning and call them for what they are. Real sins, legitimate sins, we ought to see them. We ought to reckon with the fact that we've been wronged and we ought to acknowledge these things in order that we might forgive them. That's the pattern that we have in the Lord, and this is hard. In fact, this is so hard that we most often don't do a very good job even when there aren't legitimate sins. It happened to me this week. Here I am. <laughs> 
preparing to preach again on judge not, condemn not. I have heard it before, and so have you. And I'm preparing to preach, and I'm studying these things, and I'm praying over these things. And I'm also, uh, in another sphere, working on this larger project on the presbytery level with a bunch of uh, different uh, pastors and elders, and there have been some disagreements, quite frankly. And I got this email, and this other guy is calling me out. Not just disagreeing with me, but, but making me look like a fool in front of everybody else for my position, and I was hot. Where does he get off trying to do that and trying to come against me, and how dare he, and I sinned against him in my heart. I said all sorts of things that you wouldn't like to hear from your pastor, I'm sure. And I let the sun go down on my anger, even though I shouldn't. And the next morning, feeling convicted, I went back and I read that email and I went, he's not calling me out. In fact, he's not even disagreeing with me. In fact, he's, he's kind of saying the same thing that I am in a different way. And yet my perception of this situation, I had, I had impugned motives to this brother in Christ. And I got so far down the line that I was ready to crucify him rather than the sin in my own heart. It may be that I am the only person in this room that has ever done that. It, it may be completely possible that I am the only sinner in this room that imputes motives to others that they don't, in fact, have themselves because I don't have a correct view of what's going on. But if you think that you are immune from this, let me say one word to you. Are you ready? Family. Because this happens all the time. In your family, in every other sphere of life, it might be your sibling. It might be uh, your child. It might be that spouse that you have vowed to love and cherish and uphold till death do you part, and then your perception gets away from you. And how many conflicts happen in families because we're quick to judge and we're slow to forgive and we refuse to extend to others the charity the Lord has given to us. This is a conviction of all of us. But we're slow even to, to forgive false wrongs, let alone the legitimate ones. And Jesus is calling us to forgiveness rather than a quick sense and a spirit of judgmentalism, rather than a I'll get even sort of attack on our brothers and sisters. He's calling us to charity rather than nursing grudges, even if that grudge feels really good. And this is not a light statement. I hope you understand today that this is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling this spirit of judgmentalism a wicked and a terrible sin. A spirit of, of vengeful judgmentalism against those who have wronged you is as sinful as adultery is sinful. It is as deserving of hell as hatred and envy and strife and murder and schism is deserving of hell. This is a sin and this is a wickedness. And Jesus is calling you today, if you are his follower, if by faith you've tasted, you've seen that he's good, he's calling you to actively forgive even legitimate wrongs. Because that's what the Lord has done for you in Christ Jesus. He was willing to bear the weight of your sin and the offense of it and to take it upon himself 
and refuse to count it against you. And the Lord is saying, if you're my ambassadors in the world, this is the pattern that you have. This is what a merciful disciple does. Now, at the end of, of these four commands, Jesus also offers a promise. And there, there's an aspect, I think, of God's mercy going into and through his disciples and returning back to them. You see it. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Forgiven, and, and you will be forgiven. And it, it culminates in this statement that with the measure that you use, will be measured back to you. Now, the scholars, whoever they are, the scholars like to debate whether this is a promise for now or for eternal days some other time to come. I think the passage itself actually is, is ambiguous. If you have the King James, you might notice it says men will give back to you. That, that word men isn't in the text. It's simply a passive. Forgiven, you'll be forgiven. Measure and it will be measured. And, and it leaves it open. And so maybe there, there is this sense of a general proverbial wisdom that in, in the world sphere, this is generally true most of the time, isn't it? Jesus is reminding his disciples, you catch far more flies with honey than with vinegar, and, and those who receive forgiveness from you will give it back to you. And that's, that's a good thing, and it's generally true, but we keep praying for believers in places like Russia and Sri Lanka. We keep praying for believers who give forgiveness, presumably. I, I don't know the, the 300 or so odd believers who were murdered last week. But they were hated, not because they were unforgiving, not because they were judgmental. They were hated for Christ's namesake. And so I think there, there is a larger promise here. Not just that this is generally true in the basic sense, but this is eternally true. That the, the, the blessing that we receive is, what did he say back in verse 35? Love your enemies, do them good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. What's your reward? You will be sons of the Most High. You'll be His children. You, as you're, you're merciful in the world, because God has been merciful to you, He will bring you into the presence of His mercy for all of eternity. He says, it'll be the lap of luxury. Like when you go to the market and, and the grain seller gets out his measure and he puts it in and then he shakes it and he taps it and he presses it down and he mounds it up and it's overflowing and it's more than you expected. This is what the Lord is saying he will do. This is what his mercy is like. And there's a promise here that, uh, that even if the fruits of righteousness don't return a joyful harvest in this life, the Lord is promising to repay the burden of forgiveness and charity in his presence in the re resurrection. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, but Jesus presses on. There, there's more to showing mercy to those who are around us than what we can stand to gain, either here or, or in eternity. It's also about how we can lead other people to the fountain of mercy himself. Excuse me. And so we come to the second point, and that is that merciful disciples faithfully cultivate Christian character. We've seen merciful disciples actively forgive legitimate wrongs. Now, merciful disciples faithfully cultivate Christian character. Jesus makes this point with a parable and an explanation. Verse 39 is a negative warning, this parable. Verse 40 is a positive encouragement. Take them in order. Jesus says there's a danger 
in blind men leading blind men. Now, this was the case especially in Jesus' day. There were no seeing eye dogs. There were no institutions for the blind to help them to know how to navigate the world around them. And if you couldn't see in the ancient world, the world was full of danger for you. And if you didn't have anyone who was willing to stand by you and take you by the hand and lead you from place to place, you sat in the darkness of your own home for fear that you would wander off in any number of of pitfalls or dangerous directions outside of your very front door. And Jesus says judgmentalism and mercy is a matter of leading the blind in the right direction. Here we are in a world full of spiritual pitfalls and dangers and dead ends around every corner. And how are people who are blind with sin, how are they going to find the way that leads to salvation? You've seen it happen. Somebody goes off to college. Somebody moves to a new city. And you can watch the rabbit trails. First, they just get in with a community where they're just a little more open to different spiritual experiences. And it's great because the the person who gathers that group, there's something something attractive and and magnetizing about him. And and it works for a while, and it seems to, to scratch that itch. But, you know, that magnetism wears off pretty soon. I've been preaching to you since 2010. That magnetism wears off pretty soon. And, and pretty soon you start to say, well, maybe there's, maybe there's not something more attractive out there, actually. And so then, then, it's, then it's the Buddhist group. It's the Wiccan group. Uh, maybe, maybe it goes in a completely different direction. You see it, if we could call it on the left, you see it on the right. You see uh, sort of extremism in, in lots of different directions. And you can watch. You can, you can follow those rabbit trails as people follow them throughout the world. And, and it's blind men and women leading blind men and women into paths of destruction. And the scripture would tell us that the end is the way to death. And it's all based on what's attractive for a season. I think Jesus is telling us, he's warning us to make sure that what is most attractive about our Christianity is the way that it demonstrates God's mercy to the world. That's where we ought to be leading others by our religion. This is a word for anybody in this room who has a spiritual influence on somebody else. Parents, husbands, Sunday school teachers, siblings who have younger siblings who want nothing more than to be like you and to walk uh, in your footsteps, older women who are, uh, who are mentoring younger women. If there's anybody that you have any impression upon in uh, spiritual matters, this is for you. Watch the way that you're leading others. Make sure that your religion, your, your relationship with Christ is leading them in the direction of him and his mercy and not into something that's a sidetrack that leads to death. And so we need to ask, what will others learn from the kind of Christianity that is on display in your life? Well, they learn that Christianity is the kind of religion that makes you arrogant and cocky and self-assured. It happens. Will they learn that Christianity is the kind of religion where the best thing you can do is to know all the answers to all the hard questions so that you can intellectually trounce anyone who disagrees with you? Is that what they'll learn from the kind of Christianity that is on display in your life? Will they learn that Christianity is the kind of religion where it's really all about having your act together and putting on your fake smiley, smiley face week after week after week and coming in and worshiping with other people that you don't really like very much at all? 
Or will they learn that the gospel has the power to make you tender? Will they learn that God's mercy and forgiveness in Christ has so flooded your life that you find it almost impossible to keep that grudge against the person who's wronged you? Will they learn that the Lord is the one who can be trusted with our hurts and our afflictions and the wrongs that we've suffered? You see, the warning in this parable is that a judgmental Christianity will lead others to think that life in Christ is nothing more than mere moral superiority. Looking down our nose at, at others and congratulating ourselves for being on the inside. And the blind are leading the blind all over again, and it's a straight walk into spiritual danger. But there's an encouragement here. It shows up in verse 40. And the encouragement is that the more time you spend soaking in the character of Jesus, the more you will begin to live and lead and minister to others the way he lived and led and ministered to others. What's the promise? Every disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Note well what this does not say. It does not say that every disciple, when they're fully trained, will know all the answers to all the questions that your teacher also knows. The goal here is character transformation. That's what ongoing discipleship with Christ is about. It's about being formed after the image of Christ, the true man, the one who embodies the best humanity because it's not flawed, it's not broken by sin. The one who is always tender to sinners around him. The goal of discipleship, as Paul says, is that Christ would be formed in you. That God would be conforming you to the image of Christ, he says, uh, in Romans. Jesus is saying that that's what it's about. The life of the disciple is not just to pat ourselves on the back, not to have some lengthy creed that systematizes what we believe, although those things are good, the life of the disciples is about being and becoming more like Jesus. And that happens the more we sit with him. Spiritually, as we sit at his feet through the word, as we soak in who he is and what he did and how he ministered to others, where do you learn to be merciful the way the Lord has been merciful but by looking to Jesus and his mercy to others? And so cast your eyes upon Christ, not on yourself. Go to the Lord in prayer. Seek that he would give you and work that transformation more and more in you, that he would, he would cultivate Christian character, not, not character that conforms to Christian ideals, but character that conforms to Christ, that he would make you more like him. That's the goal. And this is what the Scripture is telling us, that when you're fully trained, you're, you're not going to be blind leading the blind. You're going to be like your master like your Savior. Others will look at you and say, I see something of Jesus in that person. They might not put it that way. But that's the goal of discipleship, to, to cultivate this, this Christian character. Now, finally, Jesus uses another illustrate to, to another, excuse me. <coughs> My apologies. Jesus uses another parable to illustrate how discipleship sometimes goes wrong. And ultimately, I think, in these last two verses, Jesus is telling us how we can put to death the sin of judgmentalism and how we can begin showing mercy to others. And it happens, point number three, uh, when disciples humbly consider their personal sin. When we actively forgive legitimate wrongs, when we cultivate 
faithfully cultivate Christian character, and third, when we humbly consider personal sin. That's what a merciful disciple does. Now, you know the picture that Jesus gives in this parable. It's familiar. There are these two men, two brothers, really, and they've both got problems, and there is this blind, judgmental spirit that overlooks one's own sins in order to deal with the peccadilloes in somebody else's life. And so you have the man with the speck, and you have the man with the log, and before we get further down the road, don't underestimate that speck. That speck's a problem. That's, a, that's part of the verse and part of the passage here, that that speck is a problem. Here we are in this new house that we've bought, and already in a couple weeks, more times than I care to tell you, I have had something to do right in front of it, normally right above my head. And... Here it is, and I've got the tools, but my safety glasses are all the way in the garage. And it will take me forever just to go out there, and it'll be faster if I just deal with that, and there I go. And you know how the story ends. That speck of something finds its way into your eye, and you, you spend the rest of the day blinking and weeping out of that eye because you can't get it out, and that's a problem. The speck is a problem. That's part of this passage. The speck is a real issue. It's something like sin that if it is left there will fester and will cause terrible trouble. How often have entire marriages been ruined because of something that started out like a speck was allowed to rot and rub and irritate the entire relationship? How many churches, in the name of charity, have refused to be discerning and let in some small doctrinal error so that we can be united, and then before you know it, it's it draws the attention of everyone away from Christ, and you watch that progression happen. How often does it happen because of a speck? Little specks can be big problems, and this was a big problem, but far bigger was the problem in the person who thought they could deal with his neighbor's speck while ignoring his own log. This is supposed to be comical. Uh, actually, the word is beam. Uh, this is a, a carpentry uh, term in the New Testament. Uh, it is the, the pillar, the timber that supported the roof of the Palestinian house. And it's supposed to grab you. It's supposed to be so ridiculous that you hear that and say, come on, really? No, nobody would do that, would have a, 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 a six by eight, 20 feet long, hanging out of their eye and come to you and say, oh, I, I think I know what you need. And you're supposed to read this and say, that doesn't happen. That's ridiculous because as soon as you say, no, 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 that doesn't happen, the scripture says, oh, does it now? This is what hypocrisy looks like. It is a ridiculous blindness to the sin that is manifesting itself everywhere in your life so that you can set somebody else straight. I think I know what you need. Let, let me, yeah, I can see clearly to get it out. Just relax, I'll, I'll take care of it for you. It's blindness. It's the height of folly to think that you can ignore your own sins in order to deal with the sins of others. And hypocrisy looks like that. It looks like straining out a gnat in order to swallow a camel in one big gulp. Hypocrisy looks like the, the professional coach who's never studied the rules of the game. Hypocrisy looks like every time you have ignored the shining, blinking, fluorescent light iniquities in your life in order to focus on the minutia of the candles of sin that are barely flickering in somebody else's life. And it happens all the time. It's hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is the soil in which a judgmental spirit grows best. A critical attitude toward others is always 
where we allow ourselves to ignore our own sin. And we begin to downplay our need for mercy. We begin to downplay our need for transformation. We downplay our need for humility and growth and further sanctification. And we do it because it's easy. It's so easy to make allowances for ourselves that we would never make for anybody else. You're on 128, and you are driving like a mad person, and you're speeding, and you cut somebody off, but you can't be late for that meeting. And somebody else comes speeding, and they cut you off, and they shouldn't even have a license. Who let them drive? They're probably from Connecticut, you'll say to yourself. No offense to anyone from Connecticut. But we do that. If I'm late, it's okay. If they're late, no way. And you lose your cool and you snap at your kids and it's because work is hard and your parents are sick and you didn't sleep last night and she does it and she's got a problem. And this is how we act. And Jesus is preparing his disciples to go into the world and to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and forgiveness and salvation in his name, the message of grace and forgiveness through the cross. He's calling them to go out and to gather the elect and to lead them to Jesus but he's warning them that hypocrisy is comfortable and far easier than you might think it is to fall into. You don't have to study very long in church history to realize, <clears throat> realize that the men and the women who've been most useful to the kingdom of Christ were the ones who have most readily and honestly and transparently acknowledged their own sin. We pray sometimes with the Puritans. Lord, I need my repentance to be repented of. I need my tears to be washed. I have no righteousness to wear. I need someone else's garment, Christ's garment, for me. That was the legacy of the Puritans, that they knew their sin. No matter what the modern world wants to tell you about those sticks in the mud, they knew their sin, and they were useful to the kingdom of Christ. This is the legacy of men like Calvin, like Luther, like a thousand million others who clung so tightly to the doctrines of God's sovereign grace because they knew that if they were left to the devices of their own sin-black hearts, they were sunk. And you can see it everywhere. And you can also see the pages of church history littered with the carcasses of failed ministries of people who decided, we're not going to talk about that. I'm going to tell you how you ought to live, but I, no, 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 I, I'm doing pretty well. I've got this higher thing going on there. I don't need to mention any names. How many can you think of? How many have you watched go up in flames because the sins they were preaching against in someone else show up in their own lives? Romans chapter 2, Paul says, Do you think you're a guide to the blind, a teacher to those who are in need? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who preach against these other things, do you do these these other things, do you, do you say that the law is good for somebody else but not for you? It's the height of hypocrisy. And yes, it's an indictment of all those individuals and all their hardness of heart, but let's turn the lens of ourselves. This is also a warning to us that if David could fall and if Peter could deny and if all those others could fall into sin, so can you. And so effective, merciful discipleship begins when we turn to ourselves. If we want to minister to others, it begins with knowing our own need, with confessing our sins, with seeking to live in humility. Only when our sins are washed in the blood of Jesus, only when our hands are 
cleansed by the Holy Spirit, only then will we have anything to offer to a world full of specks and logs and everything in between. And if you want to be an effective disciple of Jesus, if the Lord has called you to be a disciple of Jesus, if you know his mercy, this is where it begins. It begins in a desire to have the Lord deal with your sins first. So this, brothers and sisters, is what merciful Christians do. They humbly consider their personal sin. They faithfully cultivate Christian character. And they actively forgive legitimate wrongs. But that's a pretty big mouthful. So we could simply say that God's children are merciful, just like their father. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray that it would be a searchlight on our souls and would expose our hearts before you, that you would deal with our sin, show us our need, show us our provision in Jesus Christ, the one who was perfect and yet took the burden of our sin so that we might stand in your presence through him and through faith in his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.